listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Well, hi, everyone. Hey, uh, one of the really, really one of my probably all-time favorite things about launching this podcast is getting to get to know people who I've always respected but haven't known very well. And today is my first ever returning guest, which I hope speaks to uh, my level of respect and how much I learn from, uh, the good Dr. Chuck DeGroote. So welcome, Chuck. Thank you, Steve. Uh, Yeah, Chuck uh, had the, I think, very unfortunate timing of releasing, I I would say, one of the most needed books in church leadership today, right as we all went into social isolation. I I really felt for you um, because this book is so timely where you talk in great detail about narcissism in church and in church leadership. So that's what we're going to kick into today. Um, so I'll just have in the show notes, I'll have a link to the book. Um, what I've, what I've said about you, Chuck, I I guess I should say it to your face. I've said it to others. There's just a handful of people that if they're writing a book, I think we should be reading it. And your previous work wholehearted is that way. And then I think this work on narcissism, I mean, unfortunately, um, it's timely and unfortunately you are uniquely qualified to, to lead us on it. So maybe let's just start by uh, giving us some backstory for people who don't know. What made you feel a need to write this book? Well, if if anyone out there read Wholeheartedness, this is almost the opposite of Wholeheartedness. Yeah, that's right. You know? yeah. I mean, and I do think, and I have said that Wholeheartedness is really the antidote in many ways to narcissism, but... This was not a book that I set out to write or intended to write or thought, wow, I just can't wait to write a book on narcissism. It came out of really a 20-plus year journey of, of work, uh, clinical work uh, in the church. began in my therapeutic practice, counseling couples, seeing narcissism show up in the church there. And then it continued on with uh, pastors uh, that that was the first piece for me that was alarming to see narcissism in pastors and then to begin doing psychological assessments with church planters and uh, pastors more generally and seeing narcissism show up really consistently or at least what we call cluster B personality disorders in the DSM-5. This would be things like histrionic and borderline and narcissism, antisocial. That was disturbing. Uh, Then I started doing some consulting, and that's when folks said to me, I don't see one resource that sort of defines this uh, and gives us resources. Um, I I see things here or there on spiritual abuse or psychological abuse or maybe a more academic book on narcissism, but I was asked by, by some folks, would you write something? And I said no a bunch of times until I kind of relented and it was a really tough book to write, honestly. It was not a joyful undertaking. Right. Well, and I, I think what was most helpful is there's obviously narcissistic personality disorder. You mentioned the DSM. But then even you've been kind of teasing us with some posts and quotes on how really all of us have some form of narcissism in us, and we can either indulge it or be aware of it and die to it. What I found most helpful is how you you break it down in such a granular way through a few lenses. One of them is the Enneagram, of course. 
But the thing that first got me going is is when you compare grandiose narcissism to vulnerable narcissism. I thought that was genius because I think we all look at the stereotypical grandiose narcissism. Talk to us about vulnerable narcissism and what that looks like. Yeah, that's the flip side of the coin. Um, and and this is where the Enneagram began to become helpful for me because as I was doing my work as both as a pastoral counselor and as a clinician, uh, I was seeing narcissistic tendencies show up, but not, not in that typical grandiose way. You know, I, I say in there that we all have this kind of caricature of narcissism, and it's that person on stage that says, look at me, look at me, look at me. And right. the vulnerable narcissist, and that might not be the best language for it. That's the more clinical language for it, but that's not a, that's n- not terribly helpful. Vulnerable narcissism, what is that? But it's a, it's a more, maybe it's a more introverted narcissism. It's a more subtle narcissism. Uh, I, I like to give the picture of grandiose narcissism as the pastor on stage uh, of a church of 10,000 people and the vulnerable narcissist on stage of a church of 50 people. And yet now in that space, um, in fact, he cherishes the small space because we're the few, the pure, the ones who really get it. We've got the right doctrine. We've figured it out. We're better than you are. And so while he's not as grandiose, there's still that sense of I've got it figured out we're special, we're important, uh, we're pure. Uh, and, and that's just as dangerous, albeit on a smaller level. Yeah, obviously, a lot of your work is around emotional health and soul care. Um, one of the recent lessons I've been learning, which has been really horrifying, is it seems to be that somebody who has narcissistic tendencies can co-opt any language and at the on the initial run look like they are, for example, chasing emotional wholeness, uh, wholeness or wellness. You talk about a vulnerability, which with my accent, I may not have pronounced well, but <laughs> the idea of faux vulnerability, yeah. I thought that was also brilliant. Could you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, this is an aspect of narcissism or narcissistic leadership that I've seen show up in maybe the last 10 years or so. I just, I started seeing it um, uh, more recently. And I, I think when I first started getting into this work and uh, paying attention, there wasn't this sense that narcissistic leaders were curious about their inner lives or their anxiety or their shame or how they show up in a room with other people. Uh, And then with the advent of, of tools like the Enneagram, with all the psychological testing that we have nowadays, and commanding a kind of gospel language of, I'm a sinner, I'm just a really big bad sinner, wow, you know, you don't know the things that I do. With that kind of false vulnerability, uh, it it dawned on me that this is a new version of of narcissism. It's not a narcissism, uh, it's not a vulnerability that, in my understanding of vulnerability, that shows up with a real honesty about how we impact another person in the moment. It's much more general. It's much more disconnected. Uh, And so, he might say, you know, I know I'm a sinner. Uh, what he might not say is, I realized that at the last staff meeting, I bullied you, and I'm sorry. Uh, and so it's a false vulnerability, and yet it can be really tricky. And I know it tricks me sometimes because I, I really want to see sh- people show up with emotional and spiritual health. And then I come yeah. to realize, oh, they, but it's not real. Yeah, so I was coaching a church, uh, it was a few years ago, and 
some of the staff came to me quietly and said, we, we don't know what to do because our leader is using emotionally healthy language. Our leader had read Failure of Nerve by Ed Friedman. This is before my book came out. Uh, and, and is actually saying to us, you're all anxious and I'm the non-anxious presence in the room. And the staff were saying, but the weird thing is we're all pretty laid back people. We, we get along well. We actually are fine until he comes into the room and he is not aware he's the most anxious person in the room. That was the first time I'd really noticed that, that a, somebody who is unaware can co-opt emotionally healthy language and just use it as a weapon. How, how would somebody tell then, like, I think what you're saying to us, Chuck, is, is the differentiator is awareness of the impact of your behavior on others? Is it that simple? Yeah, I think that that's, that's a significant part of it. And I hate to say this, Steve, but it was like a month ago that I was working with a guy who actually used managing leadership anxiety, your book. <laughs> as a weapon? And as, a, as a weapon. Yeah. So... <laughs> Uh, and I think I think that this is this is the sad thing. I mean, I think that might be another indicator of it, right? That they they actually use these really significant, really important tools of emotional health as a weapon. Well, I, I'm okay. I manage my anxiety. How come you don't? How come I've got a stack of books on my table here? Steve Cuss's book and Pete Scazzaro's and Chuck's and all these, and you don't, you know. And so it's it's really they use this to shame others. Uh, they may even use insight to shame others. And I think what you're getting at is really important. They don't, they're not quite aware of how they show up in the room, how they impact other people. Uh, they're certainly not aware of the buzzing anxiety with their, within their own bodies. Yeah, we, you know, we did this workshop uh, right before the COVID virus locked everything down. And as you know, my wife's a therapist and she was planning it with me. And as we were looking at the tools we were going to teach from my work, Lisa kept saying, like, what do we do to mitigate against the unhealthy leader in the room? Like we have teams at tables, they're doing a lot of this work at their table, something I'd never had to think about before. And we never could figure out how to manage that because we knew that ultimately we're handing people power tools. Yeah. But if you're on somebody's team and you're healthy, but your leader is not, what would be a couple of things that somebody could do yeah. to mitigate against an unhealthy leader? My sense is that it always begins with your own work, uh, paying attention to what what's going on inside of you. I think the tendency is is to to think to think externally or think about how I might be able to change that person, you know, change my leader, or confront my leader, or talk to other leadership in the church. Um, and if you do that without first doing your own work, and I mean paying attention to how anxiety works itself out in your body, uh, the role that you play in systems, uh, how trauma works itself out in you, all those kinds of things, if you don't do that work, it could be potentially dangerous to you to jump into a situation where you're trying to help, but it might backfire on you. And so I think with a good therapist, a wise mentor who gets these dynamics, uh, ha having the kinds of conversations that allow you to make that wise call. Well, maybe I need to step away. Maybe I actually need to step out of the system. But but having someone who can help you understand how you show up, uh, what might be healthy for you, how you engage in systems, I think is really important. Yeah, man. Uh, you know, obviously you have a lot of background in the Enneagram and you bring all your Enneagram training into this book. 
Um, let, let's just talk about the, um, the, the head, heart, and gut. You actually break down narcissism on how it shows up for the heart type, the head type, and the gut type. So if this isn't too bulky a question in one, Chuck, maybe you could just say, okay, here's the heart type. Here are the numbers connected to that, yeah. and here are some yeah. of the yeah. tendencies. That would be fantastic. Yeah, so you know the heart types, twos, threes, fours, the head types, five, six, sevens, and the gut types, uh, eights, nines, and ones. And uh, my my sense is that, and this is not something that I came up with. Um, I'm borrowing this wisdom from others, but that at the at the root of the heart types is shame, and a real longing to be seen. And so you know that Enneagram three achiever gets up on stage and says, "Will you see me? Will you notice me?" You know, I think I, uh, I, I as an Enneagram 4, uh, feel some of that too. Do I belong? Will you understand me? Uh, uh, the 2 uh, gives to get, right? The Enneagram 2, uh, that's how, uh, that's how we, we meet deep core needs within ourselves, uh, whereas the 5s, 6s, and 7s uh, are really motivated more by anxiety. And they're up in their heads trying to control their, uh, their inner and outer worlds, I suspect, right? Uh, and so um, the five does it through uh, uh, intellectualism, uh, staying up in his head, and the six through a kind of hypervigilance, making sure that they know all the contingencies. And the, the seven tends to live in the future, is always planning the new thing, the new experience. Wow, that shows up with pastors all the time. I've got a new idea. I've got a bold new agenda. Here's a sermon series that we can do. But it's all coming out of a kind of buzzing anxiety. And then the eights, nines, and ones, uh, we know, are, are, uh, there's, a, there's a base anger there. Um, the, uh, the eights are really self-protective. They, they, were, they were probably bullied uh, in childhood. Now they've become the bullies. Um, uh, but there's a real sense of trying to right wrongs in the world, a sense of injustice. But that bullying, that could be really dangerous. Um, whereas the nines, uh, that looks a lot more like that vulnerable narcissism, uh, more passive-aggressive, uh, more like uh, a, a tiny little knife in your back versus a big knife in your back, but a thousand of them. <laughs> and yeah. whereas the one looks more like the perfectionist, you know, um, and uh, their anger is manifested through perfecting others, righting the wrongs of the world, which, of course, when that shows up uh, in narcissistic forms can be, uh, you find yourself tiptoeing around folks like that who are always trying to uh, tell you what you're doing wrong. <laughs> So uh, that's as brief as I could do it, Steve. Is that okay? <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah. yeah. I, I, it strikes me then as an Enneagram for yourself, uh, writing a book on narcissism in the church in a publishing age where the author is expected to do all the promotion now on your own book. You are in, and, and then that being released into an era where people are not really looking for more resources, they're trying to figure out their new reality. I feel like you were in a total paradox. Like you were in an almost impossible situation. Would you just be willing to share? I think it's always helpful, Chuck, for my listeners when my guests are able to share a bit of their own inner world. Yeah. What was going on inside of you as you're trying to promote humbly a book on narcissism <laughs> yeah. in a time when people are anxious? Yeah. So uh, just to backtrack, the week before, I was teaching a class out at Fuller, and I was with maybe 15 pastors, and each day of the week, we were getting more anxious, more collectively anxious, and I was talking about conflict and anxiety and anxious systems and family systems, right? 
and here the anxiety in the room was ramping up and I was being told by my seminary that I was I would need to put classes online and uh, my launch team was up and running now for the book which was supposed to release the Tuesday after I got home right and so there's a lot going on in my own body that I was trying to manage. Uh, I flew home with a mask on and I was in go mode from there on out, uh, feeling really responsible to to the book, to the publisher, to the launch team. And I, I would say largely disconnected from the swirling anxiety in my own body so that uh, by late in the week after the launch and after some other things that happened uh, in and around my dad's health, I was exhausted and I crashed. You know, after the adrenaline high, you crash. And it took a good few days until I got back into some meditative practices. Normally, I do contemplative prayer. I had to drop that uh, to just do more what we call cataphatic in the spiritual tradition, cataphatic meditative kinds of practices just to get back to a level a level place. And then I realized, oh, Chuck, all those burning questions of your Enneagram 4 with your really strong three-wing we're, we're right there. Do you see me? Am I lost? You know, is my book lost in the midst of coronavirus? Uh, was anyone paying attention? Uh, and that was motivating me, although I wasn't quite aware of that. Yeah. Man, amen. All right, let's see where I'm at here. Okay, yeah, two more themes I'd love to explore. I think one of the gifts of your book and your work is you refuse to caricature the narcissist as anything less than fully human. I think you, you, your empathy and compassion for narcissistic people, even NPD types, I think that comes through. Uh, maybe you could just give us a taste. For, for somebody who has been on the receiving end of, let's say, a full-blown NPD, narcissistic personality disorder, um, they may not be in much of a frame of mind to be very empathetic <laughs> to that person. Yeah. I know having worked for an MPD myself, some of my healing came when I, when I grew empathetic toward that person. I'd love to hear you talk a bit about uh, what happened to them and why they're that way and what they're carrying under the surface that we may not see. Yeah, that's what's helped with my empathy. And I think um, you, you, you're, you're such a good pastor because you're, you're essentially saying to folks, uh, you don't, you don't have to come around to this very quickly. I mean, if you're carrying pain and you've been hurt or abused, uh, there's no need to kind of rush toward empathy. I, th I think for yeah. me, um, now I've been I've been hurt, uh, abused, wounded by uh, narcissistic folks in my own life, and I carry around that pain. Part of part of it for me is seeing what what's going on below the surface, below the waterline. Uh, I'm really oriented around story, people's stories. And uh, people are not the sum of what you see in the present moment. They are a lot more complex than that, um, beautifully complex. And no one diagnosis really captures whether addict or uh, narcissist or sinner, whatever label we use, doesn't capture the whole of who someone is. And the reality is, is that every narcissistic person I've ever worked with who is willing to do the work and this is more rare with NPD, but for those on the spectrum who is willing to do the work, uh, we get to a, a story of real pain, real shame, abuse in their lives. It might be multiple stories, but that's when the tears start to flow, and that's where my empathy begins to grow, and I see, oh, you've been hurt, and so you develop this 
unwittingly at a very early age, you put up these high protective defensive walls at a very early age to protect yourself. And now this is, as I say in the book, the only face you know. Uh, you don't know you're doing this. This is just how you operate in life. And so, and that that's not to let the narcissistic abuser off the hook at all. It is to hold the tension and have some empathy while at the same time taking it seriously. Yeah, I, I just found in my own life, I think that's really helpful. I, and I really appreciate your word about time, that we don't have to rush to forgiveness. I've just found in my own life that empathy became a surprising tool of healing. You know, I thought empathy was for the other person, but it ended up being so I could heal. Because I, I think I found in my own life, I'm always looking for fresh ways to be self-righteous. And when I'm wounded by a narcissist, that's a great opportunity for me. I can't speak for others, um, but that's a great opportunity for me to stand on the self-righteousness of, um, and, and that means I then, if I'm going to be self-righteous, I have to caricature the other person in order to judge them or be be bigger than them. Um, I, I don't remember if I was reading the book, Chuck, or if I listened to you on an interview, but you you have a really poignant story about in a clinical setting, the work you did to finally get a narcissist to a point of brokenness. And it was this very uh, powerful moment for them. Maybe the first time they felt safe enough to be real with you. Then they show up for the next session and the wall is back. What, um, what are your best practices for helping a narcissist stay in that pain long enough to actually find some healing? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that was the story and that's happened many times, but, um, the, the one that's particularly point, poignant for me was, a, I, what I thought was a radical breakthrough. I mean, this was a man who was back to seven years old, you know, and, uh, crying tears, cathartic tears for probably upwards of an hour. And, uh, and, this is the risk that you take uh, after a pastoral counseling session, a clinical counseling session. You you open your hands and you let them go. And uh, I can't follow them around. I can't be their shadow to say, do, do your work. Uh, he went back out, and I think combination of a couple of people in his life came together and said, um, don't let them see you sweat. Don't let them see the side of you. Fight. You need to fight. You don't need to be weak right now. <laughs> uh, and he listen to that. And I think that's the invitation that I have is uh, oftentimes in a moment like that is you're going to leave today and you're going to feel really vulnerable. And there's a part of you that's going to regret what happened today. You're going to feel shame about what happened today. And as you feel that, stay with that feeling. Um, reach out to me, email me. Um, uh, let me know that it's hard, but this is a choice to be weak, to feel powerless. Um, and I think actually this is the heart of the gospel. You know, but this is a choice to live into something that you've never experienced before. Um, and it's actually an act of repentance. Uh, when you were young and you were hurt, um, you chose to put a Band-Aid over that vulnerability. Now I'm asking you to sort of stay in that vulnerability. And and it's a, you know, flip of the coin. I don't know when they leave no. what's going to happen. Uh, and, you and can't I, predict it. You can't, can't go home it. and say, I think they're going to no, come through. No, yeah. I wish I could. <laughs> Uh, what, what brings to mind, I, I'm sure some of our listeners have experienced this. Um, I've had more than a handful of times where a member of the congregation, they'll either come and share something with me that they've never told anybody before. That's obviously a very common experience with pastoring. 
or for various complex reasons, they've been caught. Um, so maybe someone comes in and they need to get something off their chest. But also I've had it where a family member will call me and say, please help me, my, fam- my loved one is doing this thing. And now I'm in the middle of that thing. And then they leave the church. And it's because they've been seen. Um, and, and even though no one else in the church knows about it, um, even though I'm le- even legally obligated to keep confidentiality, somebody saw them for the first time. And, and I, I've also tried to say, listen, this is where grace, you had this incredible opportunity, maybe for the first time to experience grace deeper because now a human being has seen and loves you anyway. Yeah. And they're just gone. And wh- where it gets painful as a pastor is when they bury you on the way out. They do, yeah. they they have to demonize. They have to scapegoat somebody. Scapegoat someone. Yeah. You've you've run into that as well. <laughs> yeah. Because that's a good time as a pastor when that happens. <laughs> oh my god. Hey, yeah, that's one of why my recreational. Pastoring, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, now now I, as I joke about it, I'm up in the booth now. I was on the field, but now I'm up in the booth just commenting on pastoring. You know, as a seminary right. prof, but. Yeah, I have, I've experienced that in my uh, my work as a pastor in San Francisco and in Orlando, and I think it's one of the, those hardest moments, the hardest moments as a pastor when you've given yourself to this work, and, you know, you long for uh, truth in the inmost being, you know, you long for those moments for yeah. uh, where people come out of hiding, yeah. and then, I, like this moment we were talking about just a few minutes ago with this pastor, I remember when he came back in, uh, being frightened of him and feeling like you're going to go scorched earth now and I'm oh, I'm going right. to be your enemy and I, I became his enemy. Uh, he talked about how I was trying to take him down and undermine the church and uh, and I, I think that that's, that's the painful part of, of this work. Anytime, you know, the work that you and I do where we move toward vulnerability, where we move toward anxiety, there's a risk, an inherent risk involved in this that it will boomerang back uh, to hurt you as well, uh, and I, I'm, I'm not impervious to that. That hurts. Uh, that hurts in a way that I can't even describe in words. And I, I will want to crawl under my covers and not come out for the next three days after something like that happens. Well, and especially like I'm in Enneagram three, okay. and that that need to be seen and understood is so profound. And and so then you you feel more profoundly misunderstood. It is a difficult thing to die to. I, I wish I could remember where I was reading an article from a marriage and family therapist um, who specializes in narcissism. I read maybe 12 years ago. This is quite okay. a long time ago. And she was saying, um, she doesn't, she wish, she, she was saying, boy, I wish I wasn't known for working with narcissists. I certainly don't mm. enjoy it. Mm. But what I had to learn is I used to think that I had to go into the session with Teflon. Yeah. Like, hey, you can't hurt me. Yeah. But the only hope for the narcissist is to actually let them hurt me and then feel the hurt and do my best to reflect to them how it felt. Yes. Oh, Say more that's about so that. good. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, in my early years as a therapist, I, I thought that I had to match their strength and it was exhausting. Uh, I, I had some influences early on that were more kind of prophetic and challenging in their therapeutic approach. And so I thought that I had to, um, I had to come with guns blazing and, um, and, and in a sense, show them up, you know, in a sense, call them out, show them up and call them to repentance. And, uh, it was, it was, uh, I, 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 
I look back at that and I'm almost ashamed of, of that work that I did with folks. And uh, I think that there are some situations that I look back now that to now that I, I, I think I made worse because of my approach. It's only when I started showing up as human, um, as, as uh, fragile, as broken myself. Um, interestingly, I, I learned this not through some technique, not through some book, um, but I learned it uh, on the job, so to speak. I remember I was seeing a man uh, over 10 years ago, probably 12 or 13 years ago now, um, who was filthy rich. And I had just become a doctor. I had just gotten my doctoral degree. So he was coming to see me because I was the expert, right? And um, he wanted to call me Dr. DeGroat, and he insisted on this kind of professional, you know, you're the expert, and you're going to fix me, and you're going to... And I remember thinking, I don't want to play that game. I'm tired of playing that game. Um, and I insisted that he call me Chuck. And uh, there were times where I'd show up late for a session, or I'd, I'd just say, you know what, I wasn't particularly helpful last week. Uh, uh, I wasn't, I was having a hard time last week. I didn't show up very well. I'm not going to charge you for that session. And he'd say, what, uh, what do you mean by that? You know, you didn't show up well, you're supposed to be the expert. And I sort of modeled it and, and, and we became human to one another, I think in that yeah. season. And I thought this feels so much different than that exhausting attempt to kind of prophetically challenge and fix the person that I engaged in earlier. Well, and I think you also beautifully modeled for us the power that can happen when you don't take someone else's assumption you don't embrace mm. their assumption about what you must be because that is yeah that's a common challenge i think we all face yeah all right so now i'm going to do this weird thing where i'm going to read to you your quote that you said okay. <laughs> and i believe i think you actually published it this morning it was it's the latest blog on your website and, it, you know, we haven't gotten into overt versus covert narcissism, but you had this wonderful article on covert narcissism where, where you're seeing it come up in this social isolation and the virus. Here's what you wrote. So I'm just going to read it, Chuck, and then if you could react to your own quote, yeah, we'll see yeah, if this works sure. or not. I don't know. Yeah. You said, when I'm stuck on the reactive hamster wheel of self-protective narcissistic self-interest, I'm laser focused on what I'm losing missing or deprived of and i'm anxiously grasping for the fruit of the most convenient tree within reach usually one that gives me some sense of power control and relevance when i can relax into the secure arms of god as one who is beloved and seen i can offer something deeper originating from a calm center where christ dwells what do you have for us? So that, yeah, so that came out of this recent season of, of COVID. And a number of people were asking me, uh, you know, you, you said it at the beginning, uh, people are over-resourced right now, right? Um, and you and I were even thinking about doing something. We thought, let's hit time out on this. We don't need yeah. to do it right now. But yeah. uh, I, I keep hearing from folks, how, how is narcissism showing up in the midst of this moment, you know? And uh, that was just a, a self-reflective moment for me, how, how it shows up for me um, in particular. And I think that uh, you, you talk a lot about anxiety, and you've had guests on where you talk about anxiety and trauma. Uh, yeah. we, know, we know that in our bodies, in situations or in seasons where we feel somewhat traumatized, uh, it's like the walls come in, we're constricted, 
we become very narrowly focused. Um, it's, it's all about self-preservation and self-protection. And I'm not, very, uh, I'm not very healthy or helpful to others in that moment. Um, I, I, my family feels it. They feel the anxiety. Um, they've talked about, even in the last couple of weeks, how my moods are up and down. Um, depression and anxiety are always kind of within, um, with, within just a little bit of a distance. And so I've got to be really aware. We all have to, but I was just sort of reflecting personally. I'm just needing to be really aware of how anxiety is working itself out in my body right now. And uh, I've committed, actually, I'm doing more meditation now than I have in probably three years uh, because my body is, is buzzing with anxiety and it's just coming out sideways. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that. I've, I've been caught off guard. Uh, I, I think something I, I feel proud of about myself is having written a book on leadership anxiety, I'm giving myself permission to not act like a graduate. Like, I think there's always a temptation to step into that expert chair, but I've been really caught off guard the last couple of weeks at how uh, my mood has swung so radically. I'm not sleeping well. And I'm I'm having I'm having to do extra work. I'm just trying to get a pulse on where I am. Uh, it's quite interesting, and I'm trying to figure out: is it too much Zoom in my life? Is it that I'm mostly in a basement now? But I'm getting more. I'm outdoors more than I have been in in months. Uh, so I'm getting a lot more steps. I'm spending more time with my wife, and I'm still really thrown off. Yeah. And I don't know why yet. I'm just. I think yeah. all I can yeah. suggest to our yeah. listeners is I'm not going to give up the fight. Right. I think yeah. that's what you're saying too. Digging yeah. deeper. It's funny because I you were just talking about that, and I thought I think I, I think I quote or I I offer your book as a resource in mine. Right. Um. In in that chapter on the characteristics of a narcissistic leader, and here you and I are talking about uh, we're not there, uh, we're not healed, oh, yeah. uh, it's not finished yet. Uh, we're not entirely sure what's going on, and that's, I mean, I think that that's sometimes surprising for people to hear that when you've done this work that you're, st we're still even trying to figure out, well, how's it playing out in my life right now? Because I think I'm trying to do the right things and taking walks and going outside and meditating, but, well, it's still there. I still, yeah. uh, I still got too angry when my daughter said that, and um, where did that come from, you know? Folks, I've heard from many of you that you're looking for a next step to interact with the tools that we discuss on this podcast. So starting in mid-May, I'm launching an interactive Zoom book club where we'll meet to discuss the tools and the concepts in my book, Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs. We'll meet for six sessions and in each session, I'll present some content for a few minutes, including some fresh content that isn't in the book. And then I'll put you in a virtual Zoom room with just a few other folks where you'll have an opportunity to chat through some of the questions and the tools each week. Each session will also be available for a bunch of Q&A, and you'll also have access to a private discussion group during the week. I'm keeping it as affordable as I can, so $48 total gets you access to all six Zoom sessions. It also gets you a private group, and we'll also mail you a book for that price. 
Uh, for those who want it, we actually designed a custom high-end MLA journal. It's like a moleskin journal, and you can buy that too when you register for the Zoom. I'm going to keep the number of spaces limited. I want to make sure people have a good chance to interact. So if this is something you're interested in, just shoot me an email, steve at stevecusswords.com, or contact me through Twitter or Insta on at stevecusswords. I'll have a registration link available soon, but I'm starting an interest list now. So if you're wanting to dig a bit deeper into the materials, or maybe you just need a kick in the butt to get to reading the book, you can join the Interactive Book Club and send me your info. Thanks, folks. Chuck, uh, I'm sorry to say that even though you're a returning guest, uh, rather than um, let you skip on the gauntlet, I've just updated the gauntlet of anxiety questions uh, for you. So if you're ready to take them like a man, uh, let's take them one at a time. Let's do it. Yeah. So Chuck, uh, a fresh set of gauntlet anxiety questions. Uh, Here's number one. Just give us a couple of leadership situations that generate anxiety for you. When you just know if you're walking into this situation, it's going to, you know, you're going to be anxious. I think one of the main ones for me that I've seen over the last number of years that I haven't been leading a team, but I've been, uh, I've just been simply a a faculty member uh, as a part of a larger faculty being led is I'm not in control. And, uh, and I want to think that I'm pretty omniscient given all the tools that I have about about systems and how all of our, you know, we got family systems and Enneagram and internal family systems and all these tools. And I sit there and my body is still an anxious wreck. Um, And because I'm not in charge, I can't say, hey, let's stop and process what's going on right now. Uh, So that when there's conflict, I hear a faculty member raise a voice or I see someone pull back and become distant, that I, I... I'm not the person called to actually do that work in that moment. I'm not a consultant. I'm simply a member of the team. Uh, that makes me really anxious. That's a great answer. You're, I think you are enumerating what so many people feel, which is when they see more than they can say. Mm-hmm. Like you see all this and you can see what's going on, but you're not, for whatever <coughs> reason, in a hierarchical position to say it. Yes. Oh, that's a great answer. Yeah. Okay. Um. I think we've covered this next one, but let's give it a whirl. Yeah. Who in your life knows that you're anxious before you know you're anxious? Oof, wow. Yeah, well, my wife can sense it. I mean, she just, she feels it in the room. And uh, my daughters, my daughters are 18 and 17 now, and they know it and they feel it. And as soon as they say it, I get defensive, of course, still, because I'm that mature. Um, no, no, I'm not. I'm fine. <laughs> But they sense That's it. That's the sign. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I, I fake a lot of people out. I look uh, less anxious 
uh, to colleagues than I really am, but my family feels it. Yeah, that's good. Um, one of the gifts of family systems theory, as you know, the genogram work, understanding generational traits that you've inherited. Could you just give us one trait that you see as a real asset, like you're a DeGroat, and here's a DeGroat trait that is just such a great asset in leadership, and then maybe give us a trait that's a liability. Yeah. Ooh, yeah, so I did my genogram work 20 years ago now, 22 years ago, right? And uh, that was, this work is so painful. Uh, yes, it is. It's, and I'm a four, so I look for all the bad traits. But uh, um, I think one of the, one of the important ones was, uh, comes from my dad. Uh, my dad, um, my dad might be more avoidant um, than I wish, but my dad uh, was was a steady presence in the best sense of the, the word. Um, he he was kind of a uh, in in the best sense a rock, um, not perfect, but uh, and that was I think a kind of a degrote trait uh, that he brought. My dad uh, my dad's family is from the Midwest, and I grew up on Long Island. Uh, I often say that my family was like a Seinfeld episode. But my dad brought this steadiness in the midst of a, a lot of a lot of chaos. Um, yeah, at the same time, uh, our there was generational anxiety and anger in my family, uh, chaos, and that's that's a word that I remember um, showing up on my genogram th that many years ago. Chaos, mm -hmm. uh, just looking at. Uh, even though people's lives seem orderly on the outside, the emotional relationships were really volatile. And uh, one of the things I realized early on in my marriage, and the thing that prompt, one of the things that prompted me actually to begin doing my own work about three or four years in was my own volatility showing up in my marriage, and my wife saying, "But where does this come from? You seem pretty from? normal, yeah. but but then you just get way out of sorts." Yeah. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Uh, would you be willing to tell us about a recent mistake you made and how you recovered from it? Oh, yeah. Well, there's a lot to choose from. Uh, <laughs> I, I tell you, I, uh, one of my, my principles is uh, wh wherever I've worked over the last number of years has been people are free to come to me and tell me how they experience me. Um, and when I say that to folks, most of the time they'll say, well, oh, you're, you've, you're a counselor. You're fine. You're never going to do that. And I'll say, just wait. You'll see. And I had a student. <laughs> I had a student come to me uh, a, a few weeks ago before all this uh, COVID stuff and came up to my office kind of meekly and said, hey, can I, can I uh, take you up on your offer to tell you how I experience you? And he, he said, you have been very distant lately. And I noticed that when you come down the stairs from your office and you walk across the floor of what we call the atrium at the seminary, you're walking it like 100 miles an hour, and you're going to get your coffee, and you're going back, and it's like everything about your body language says, don't interact with me, and I, I don't know how to connect with you right now, so I figured I'd come up and tell you, and I, my immediate sense was gratitude. Thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity to talk to you about this and telling me how it impacted you, and uh, I asked him what he felt, what he needed, and he shared that with me, and we connected in a really alive way over the next few minutes. I love it. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, we've got two more questions. I'm, I'm confident we're going to make it. <laughs> um, 
I think uh, one of the greatest sources of anxiety for Lita is when you don't know what to do, but you have to do something. Mm-hmm. Uh, boy, is this ever a time to pay attention to that. Yeah. Chuck, when, when you don't know what to do, could you just give us a sense of your self-talk? What's going on in you when you don't know what to do? Yeah, so my self-talk goes somewhere to um, uh, you don't have anything to offer. Um, you've never had anything to offer. Um, even if you try, you'll miss the mark. Uh, I think, uh, just to talk a little Enneagram again, I think one of the things that was so helpful to me a few years ago about the Enneagram 4 is the 4 feels like he or she didn't get the instruction manual to life. And so I just don't know how to show up. And, um, and so I feel stupid. I feel like a fraud. I feel like I don't have anything to offer in, in those seasons. Funny thing is, is I can make it up. I learned, that's maybe my three wing. I learned to make it up early on to make people think that I knew what I was doing. But still, the narrative operates in the background. Um, you don't know what you're doing. Um, just check out. Just jettison. Just quit. Just go away. Yeah. Okay. All right, the final question has become one of my favorites. Um, just where, where John casts this vision in, the, in his book, that perfect love casts out all fear. Hmm. Uh, and and I've, I've been continuing, even after the book came out, continuing to work on crafting a theology of anxiety. Wow. How does, how does anxiety show up spiritually, and then how can it be displaced by the gospel? And one of my theses I'm working on is that you can't, be in the grip of chronic anxiety and in the grip of unconditional love at the same wow. time. One displaces the other. Yeah. So to that end, uh, when in your life do you feel most fully and completely loved? Yeah. Oh, that's so good. Uh, I, I feel, so I, I feel loved by my family. Um, I feel loved by friends. But if I'm honest, it's been through the practice of contemplative prayer, uh, which began uh, in seed form many, many years ago, uh, reading Henry Nouwen, I think, was the, the first one who, uh, the, the first writer who convinced me that I was the beloved. Um, it it kind of got through the cracks somehow, you know, because yeah. I resisted that. And I think there are these times, and I, I'm not in any way um, uh, very good at contemplative prayer, and I don't experience this regularly, but sometimes there are breakthroughs of such uh, extraordinary love that in my body, in my being, in my physiology, in my neurobiology, deep down to the depths, I can feel it. And uh, there's a sense in that moment of of what I call wholeheartedness, that uh, I'm okay right now. Five minutes from now, I'd probably be a nervous wreck again. But uh, in that space, there's no no room for anxiety. So... uh, Boy, that's a great question, and uh, to my mind, you can't write that book soon enough. <laughs> I want to hear your reflections I, on it. I, I really like that answer because for two reasons. One is I think you cast a vision that being flooded with the unconditional love of God all through your body, you only need about 30 seconds of it to get through a lot of life. Yeah, that's right. Like you just mentioned, maybe five minutes later I won't feel that way, but that's been my experience too, is these yeah. these momentary encounters yeah. really outpunch their weight. Yeah. The other thing I love, Chuck, is you actually have built a video course for people on contemplative prayer. Yeah. 
I do just want to point out for our listeners, um, I think we all are having to dig deeper than we've been digging to get through this season. And you really did craft a course for us, um, particularly for maybe people who have never encountered contemplative prayer before. You you kind of guide us in. Where can people access that course? Yeah, so my website is chuckdegroat.net. You can find it there, or uh, the course is... is, uh, uh, is on a platform called Teachable. So you can just do a search for Chuck DeGroat Teachable, and it will probably pop up as a video course there. Great. Yeah, so I'm going to make sure there's a link to that too in the show notes because well worth checking. I, I, if I recall, it's been a while since I've looked at it. I think you have a sample course for people to get that. Yeah, the, the first one, the first video is, is free, and there are resources in there. And it's really, it's an introductory, uh, it, and it's not, uh, this was my first shot at doing a video course. Um, uh, in the first video, it's really funny, uh, as, I'm, as I'm doing the video, a spider kind of comes down from the ceiling and is <laughs> right next to me. And my wife was like, aren't you going to edit that out or redo it? And I said, no, that's just perfect. That just feels like it the distractions is. that come in in the midst of us trying to do, uh, do this work. So it's kind of oh, fun. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, Chuck, you know, you and I were supposed to get together next month. Yes. I, I've really been mourning that we're not doing that, yeah. but I'm looking forward to later on when we can connect yeah. in person. Yeah, uh, I was looking forward that to that too, meeting you, meeting your wife, uh, getting to know you better. But this has been so fun. It's been such a privilege getting to know you, Steve, and thank you. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org. 